liberalization of our laws has made divorce both easier with so-called quickie divorces, possible after just a year of marriage, and cheaper. One online agency promises to complete all the legal documents necessary for £69. But the real costs of divorce, as some of us painfully know, are far, far higher. Not just in terms of money. A report in 2003 said the average cost was £13,000. But the costs are painful and personal, leaving deep emotional wounds, psychological scars that often don't heal even years after the event. Now, given that that is the case, and given that an increasing number of people, including Christians, have experienced the trauma of divorce, it may seem the height of insensitivity on my part to focus on such a subject in church today, especially given that the title of our series is Living in Hope. I do so, however, for two reasons. First of all, the subject of divorce is the background to the second chapter of the book of Jeremiah, in which we find ourselves transported back in time, as it were, to a very familiar place. Even in our society, in every society, we find ourselves in the divorce court as we come to Jeremiah 2. But secondly, we are going to discover, much to our surprise, that in this divorce court, God's people are in the dock and God himself is the plaintiff. And here is no dispassionate deity, but a caring, compassionate husband, deeply wounded by his fickle and unfaithful wife. So, here is hope for those who have suffered betrayal and desertion. God not only knows what you are going through and have gone through, but he also feels it as well. But not only that, here is hope for those of us who have been unfaithful, who have committed adultery, or are thinking of doing so. God passionately cares about your sin and the damage and disaster it will bring on you. God's warnings are always warnings of love. But as we look at this chapter, we're going to read it in a moment, you will see that divorce and adultery are illustrations of a far greater problem if you're just sitting back there and saying, this has nothing to do with me, that it's a subject that affects all of us who claim to be Christians, for the subject is spiritual adultery. And it is God's people who are in the dark. God is hurt. His spirit is grieved when we are unfaithful to him. And he will not let us drift into disaster. Rather, he speaks through his word. He speaks through his prophet to issue his warnings of love. 
So if you're the sort of person, and some of you are, and some of you are really good at disguising it, and others not so, if you're the sort of person who switches off at this point for 30 minutes or so, stay alert. Because God may have something to say to you this morning. And as we read, try and feel what God feels. Jeremiah 2 then. It's a long chapter. 37 verses. Follow with me. It's page 756 on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, it really is important to have a Bible in front of you. Can I say again? The Bibles are for those who don't have Bibles. If you leave your Bible at home, start bringing it with you. And if you can, week by week, read ahead before we meet together. Interested to know how many of us read through Jeremiah 2 before we came here today. Preparation. Jeremiah 2, the word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all you clans of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the Lord did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, those following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Kittim and look, Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there's ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yeah, they're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? Lions have roared, they've growled at him, they've laid waste his land. His towns are burned and deserted. Also the men of Memphis and Tarphanes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you by the way? Now why go to Egypt to drink water from this Shihor? And why go to Assyria to drink water from the river? Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you. When you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Long ago you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Instead, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Although you wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Sovereign Lord. 
How can you say I'm not defiled? I've not run after the balls. See how you behaved in the valley. Consider what you've done. You're a swift she-camel running here and there. A wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving. In her heat, who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they'll find her. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you said it's no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. As a thief is disgraced when he's caught, so the house of Israel is disgraced. They, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, they say to wood, you are my father, and to stone, you gave me birth. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they are in trouble, they say, come and save us. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you're in trouble. But you have as many gods as you have towns, O Judah. Why do you bring charges against me? You have all rebelled against me, declares the Lord. In vain I punish your people. They did not respond to correction. Your sword has divided your prophets like a ravening lion. You of this generation, consider the word of the Lord. Have I been a desert to Israel? Or a land of great darkness? Why do my people say we are free to roam? We will come to you no more. Does a maiden forget her jewelry? A bride, her wedding ornaments, yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How skilled you are at pursuing love. Even the worst of women can learn from your ways. On your clothes men find the lifeblood of the innocent poor. Though you did not catch them breaking in, yet in spite of all this you say, I'm innocent, he's not angry with me. But I will pass judgment on you because you say I've not sinned. Why do you go about so much changing your ways? You'll be disappointed by Egypt as you were by Assyria, you will also leave that place with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those you trust. You will not be helped by them. This is the word of the Lord. Now, it's a tough passage and I need God's help and you do. Let's just pray for a moment and ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you spoke through the prophet Jeremiah to your people of old. May your word, your living word, come to us two and a half millennia later with relevance and conviction and power so that we turn from our ways and turn to the one whom you have provided through whom we can find forgiveness and restoration even Jesus Christ our Lord in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, as we come into the book of Jeremiah, this is the first recorded occasion in which Jeremiah tells us the word of the Lord came to me with a message for God's people. Although it's not dated, it's probably right from the earliest part of Jeremiah's ministry. Maybe I want to suggest it's the first message you receive from the Lord. And to get a grasp on what he's actually saying, let me suggest uh, that we hear it as like the opening statement in court. You know when a big case takes place in court? The prosecuting attorney, he presents the broad outlines of his case. He'll return to it later in detail. This is the opening statement before the court, with even the heavens as witness, verse 12. So, in this chapter we see that Jeremiah focuses on major themes to which he will return in messages from the Lord for the next 40 years and 50 chapters. 
And I want to group these together to help us to, to focus our thoughts on three themes. And I'm going to link them with three verbs, which are key verbs in the passage. All right. Here's the first word and theme. Devotion. And the word I want to focus on is the word love. Now, all of us who are married can, I hope, remember our honeymoon. And I hope all, if not most of us, who were married and went on a honeymoon found it an enjoyable occasion. We look back with uh, happiness. It's the right word, isn't it? And before the Lord addresses his wayward wife, he very wisely doesn't begin with the words of criticism he has to say. He winsomely and wisely invites God's people to recall the honeymoon that they experienced in the past, following the covenant of marriage that he made with them, as it were. Now, I don't know why you went for your honeymoon if you're married, but God's people enjoyed a honeymoon in the desert. Uh, rescued from centuries of slavery in Egypt, the Lord led his bride, verse 6, through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels, no one lives. It wasn't a very promising place for a honeymoon, but because God's people loved the Lord so much, they were willing to follow him through the desert to a strange land. And his bride gladly followed him. Look what he says. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, verse 2, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me, followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. Now notice what it says very significantly. The Lord says, I remember how you loved me. Now the word love here is a beautiful word. It's, it's a Hebrew word, chesed. And it's a word that's translated in different ways. Loving kindness, faithfulness, tender mercy. But the interesting thing is, this word love is nearly always in the Old Testament used with God as the subject. It is God who shows his faithful love to his people. This is a rare, I didn't have time to look through all my concordances, but it's a very rare occasion in which God's people are the subject. Yes, God shows his wonderful covenant love to them, but they respond in like measure. It is a mutual meeting of love, covenant love. Like the first fruits of the harvest in Israel, when they brought in the harvest, the first fruits went to the Lord. They were devoted, set apart for him. So he says, Israel belonged exclusively to me. And so they prepared to follow him on their honeymoon journey through the desert. As I was preparing this, I was thinking about some of the places Nietzsche and I lived in the early years of our marriage. And our first assignment overseas was in a desert. It was in the desert of Sindh in Pakistan. It's one of the hottest places on earth. The Arabs have a saying, God created sin, what need is there of hell? Well, it's that hot. Well, not that hot, but you understand what I'm making. Uh, we, we lived, I was trying to find a picture in, among all our slides as we recently moved, we lived in a little two-room mud house with inter very intermittent electricity and hardly any water. We sort of carted it around. In fact, Nita threatens to write our life story and she's already got the best title, which is From Mud Huts to Morningside, which I think would be uh, a good title. Now, I don't tell you that so that you can say, wow, that was wonderful. Listen, we just never thought anything about it. Why? 
Well, because of the love we had for one another, but more importantly, the love we had for the Lord. We said, great, we're going to serve the Lord together. Who's worried about electricity and a bit of heat? And Jeremiah reminds the Lord's people that the Lord, he said, don't you remember how I provided for you? How I protected you from your enemies? If anyone touched you, they were in trouble. I was a loyal husband. Until at last I brought you to your destination, the promised land. I brought you, verse 7, into a fertile land to eat its fruit and its rich produce. Now, let me, at this first point, stop and say, it is always a good exercise as a Christian to look back to the beginnings of your walk with God. Not just with a sense of nostalgia, but first of all with a sense of thankfulness to God that he rescued you. By his grace, if you're a Christian, brought you out of slavery, not in Egypt, but to sin. Put you into a relationship with himself. What an amazing, wonderful thing. You should always remember that. But it's also good to do it for a second reason. The second reason is to ask ourselves, do we love the Lord now as much or more than we did then? That's why I chose William Cooper's hymn. Do we sometimes say, where is the blessedness I knew When first I saw the Lord, where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? Does the Lord say to you this morning, do you remember when you first came and I met you and you loved me? You were devoted to me wholeheartedly? Can you remember? Sadly, in Jeremiah's day, the one-time devotion and love of the people of Judah has been replaced by another theme. And another word. Here's the second word, the second theme. The second word is desertion. And the word is forsake. Uh, Last year, I think it was last year, as I get older, my timings get blurred. But um, last year I attended a a conference for church leaders in Glasgow. And one of the speakers, a man that many of you will know, and I commend his books, if you can get any of them, just keep reading them, was John Piper. John Piper is a very passionate preacher. His life reflects his ministry. His ministry goes into the banner desiring God. And the strap line is this. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. And as well as hearing him preach, there was a seminar for church leaders entitled Enjoying God in Your Ministry. So I signed up for it. We need to enjoy God in our ministry. And he simply stood up and he said, I want to give you Ten things we need to get right. That's interesting. And he said, I'll give you a scripture for each one. Here was the first thing he said we need to get right. I'm not telling you the other nine. You can get the tape maybe. I don't know. But here's the first thing that you need to get right. He said, what sin is. And the verse? Jeremiah 2 verse 13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. You see, at the heart of sin is not breaking rules. At the heart of sin is breaking relationship. Another American preacher, I've recommended his book on Jeremiah, if you've got... 20 pounds to spare, buy it and read it. You'll be blessed and encouraged by it. Philip Riken's book on Jeremiah. 
Uh, and he, the little phrase he puts in there says, Redemption is a romance. Redemption is a romance. It's a love relationship with the living God. And God loves people. Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning, you think, don't know what I'm doing here, what's this all about? Could sing these hymns, say these prayers, do these things, could never make it. Listen, it's about God's love for you. He loves you. He wants to enter into an intimate relationship with you, which will fulfill your life in a way that nothing else has or will. A story that outmatches by a thousand million times any human fable of a rich prince and a poor Cinderella. But despite such a marvellous marriage and a wonderful husband, the Lord says to Israel, you, my wife, have chosen to walk away. You have chosen to forsake me. You know the first use of the word forsake in the Bible? If you're married, you should, because it was almost certainly read at your wedding. Adam and Eve, the Lord said to them when he brought them together, Genesis 2, 24, for this reason, a man will forsake, same word, his father and mother, and be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. So at the wedding service, first the groom, then the bride, is asked the question. She is asked, because it's a bride in this story, will you have this man to be your lawfully wedded wife, to live together according to God's ordinance in the holy state of matrimony? So many I can repeat it. Will you love her, comfort, honour, and some of them say obey, but not all, and keep him in sickness and in health, and forsaking all other, keep yourself only unto him. And for the marriage to be legal and binding, I listen for them to say, I will. First the groom, and the bride. But for the marriage to remain intact, both parties need to keep that commitment. And in the marriage between the Lord and Israel, the Lord says, listen, I've been totally faithful. But you have chosen to forsake me. You see, what sin is? What sin is, it has two sides. One, forsaking the Lord. You have forsaken me. Spring of living water. The other side, which always follows when we forsake the Lord, because we're lost then, is relying on our own initiative and have dug for their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, in the case of Israel, or Judah as it was then, the truncated second half, bottom half of Israel, southern half, uh, their own initiatives meant two things. First of all, it meant making foreign alliances. You see, no longer relying on the Lord for security, the nation of Israel kept switching alliances between the two superpowers, Egypt to the south, Assyria to the north. So Jeremiah asks, why go to Egypt to drink water from the Shihor? It's a branch of the Nile, you can see in the footnote at the bottom of the NIV. And he says, why go to Assyria to drink from the river, Euphrates? But not only that, more seriously, well, just as seriously, probably more seriously, Forsaking the Lord also meant worshipping foreign gods. Jeremiah says you're led by people, priests who do not know the Lord, rulers who are rebels, literally rulers of shepherds, who are lost, prophets prompted by the old Canaanite gods or Baals. The nation has reverted to idol worship with its accompanying sexual excesses. 
And in terrible graphic terms, he describes them like a she-camel that runs here and there and like a wild donkey in heat looking for a mate. Not very polite language. Like their fathers before him, he said, they followed worthless idols. Now, the foreign alliances and idols may be different in our day, but the principle and the problem is still the same. When we forsake the Lord... We place our reliance on other things of our own devising. Because, because what? Because we're made for that. We're made for relationships, supremely. And because we're made for relationships, the most popular way people do this, which is quite why the subject is so closely linked with physical adultery and spiritual adultery, is the closest way we do it is to find someone that we think will fulfill us in a way that our present partner does not and so we try to find fulfillment in sex interestingly I think it was last year uh, there was a Christian road show that was doing a tour of Great Britain sadly it was cancelled in Edinburgh because of and all the stuff I signed them up for it um, because of lack of interest which says something about well I don't know what it says something about but uh, the subject was Helping Christians to deal with internet pornography. And the title of this show was The Search for Intimacy. The Search for Intimacy. Now the Lord in the divorce court brings charges against his people concerning his desertion of them. Notice what he says. Very interesting. The first charge he says is Your desertion is unjustified. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. You see, in God's court, friends, there is no room for a fault, no fault divorce. God says there is always fault and he comes to his people and he says, I am fault free. You are the guilty party here. And he says, it's totally unjustified. What have I done to deserve this? I've provided for you. I've protected you. I've given you your own land. I've rescued you from slavery. Well, he says, it's just ridiculous. It's totally unjustified. Not only that, the Lord brings a second charge against him. He says, your desertion is unprecedented. He says, go over to the coast of Kittim. Kittim is Cyprus, way out in the Med. Or go to the Far East, to the desert tribes in Kedar. He says, no one has ever seen anything like this. A nation forsaking its gods. In modern analogy, it is as unheard of of a lifelong football supporter changing his team. But even more amazing, imagine you're supporting a team that is top of the Premier League. I'm not going to give any specifics here, right? But Imagine supporting a team that is top of the Premier League and instead supporting a team that isn't even in the league. That's what the Lord says. You exchange me for gods that aren't even gods. They're just made up. And so the third charge against his people is, your desertion is unbelievable. He says, as a nation never changed its gods, yet they're not, changed, they're not gods at all. What they've done is unbelievable. He says, you've exchanged reality for fakes. But my people have exchanged their glory 
capital G, for worthless idols. The word glory refers to the brilliant, transcendent, living character of the living God. God has entered into relationship, the living God in all his glory, with his people, and he says, you've swapped it for fates. Idols that aren't even idols, they're not even gods. Swapping gold for glitter. No wonder the prophet says, the watching heavens are shuddering and saying, how could you do that? And to make the point even clearer, he continues the verse with which we began. The people of Israel, he says, you're guilty of exchanging a living spring for a dried up cistern. My people have committed two sins, they've forsaken me. The spring of living water... And have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, in the society that has water on tap, this probably doesn't make a lot of impression upon us. But think for a moment. This is Israel. If you've ever been there, it's a pretty hot, barren place in many parts. Imagine living there, and at the bottom of your property, you have a freshwater spring that fills a lovely cool pool at the bottom of the garden. Uh, there's a picture coming up of En Gedi near the Dead Sea. They're not, very, they're not very common in Israel. If you've been to Israel, you'll know that. No matter what season it is, you can just come out of your front door and you can go down the drive and you can leap in the pool and you can drink out of this living water that's coming down from the mountains, fresh, clear, crystal water. But imagine saying, don't fancy that. And you get your hammer and chisel out and day after day you start digging a hole in the barren rock to make yourself a cistern. to gather the little bits of rain and groundwater that you can, only to discover when you spent all this time doing it, in actual fact, the water just runs away anyway and it ends up like a dried up cistern. You see those in Israel as well. To spend all your time and energy on cistern building when fresh water is freely available is unbelievable. Yet the people of Israel did it and so do we. Instead of Enjoying a life-fulfilling relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. We prefer our own man-made attempts, scrabbling for stagnant system water. You remembered to a woman at a well that Jesus met in Samaria of all places for a Jew. She was still thirsty after multiple relationships with men. You had five husbands, said Jesus, and the one you met living with is not your husband anyway. Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water in the well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Later, to a crowd of Jews gathered in the city of Jerusalem for the great feast, the same city where Jeremiah has been prophesying 600 years before, Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, but <clears throat> whom those believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Friends, here's good news. Jesus has been glorified. The Spirit has been given. We can enjoy an intimate relationship with God, where his Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we're God's children. Joy unspeakable, full of the Holy Spirit, says the scripture. And so, it's just a wonderful theme and you come right to the end of the Bible. And the very last promise, and the very last chapter of the very last book is, the Spirit and the Bride say, come, let him who is thirsty come and drink. 
of the free gift of the water of life. Unbelievably, we refuse the offer. Even more unbelievably, some of us who have tasted that life-giving water have, like God's people of old, have turned to other offers of our own making to broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And you may be one this morning in Charlotte Chapel. You may be a member, you may be a deacon, an elder, you may be a visiting minister, whoever you are, it is possible to go through the motions and yet to have lost a living relationship with a living God that is absolutely fulfilling. And I'll guarantee if you're doing this, you'll be filling your life with other things that you think will satisfy And I tell you something else as well that the prophet told God's people. It is unbelievable because you end up exchanging sonship for slavery. Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? Verse 14, he says, lions have come in and ravaged your land. It's back to slavery. It's back to Egypt. Or if you don't fancy Egypt, how about Assyria? The outcome is the same. Loss of freedom. To the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus said... Anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. They said, we're free, we're children of Abraham. He said, listen, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. We lose our freedom. And I simply ask you at this point, so I ask myself as I prepared this this week, it's not an easy exercise, where are you in this? Why do people, why do we do this? Christians, well, let me come in towards the end. Goodness. The answer can be seen in the third theme, which we can discover in Jeremiah 2, and another verb. All right, here's the final word and verb, which is taking a little time longer, but it's important to hear what God wants to say to us. The third word is deception. And the verb I want you to think about is forget. Now, I hope by now that you've memorized Jeremiah 29, 11, which is our verse for the year. And uh, do help yourself to a verse card. I've got one in my Bible somewhere which you can put on your mantel shelf or pin in a useful place. There is another verse in Jeremiah that is not so well known, but I want to suggest that you learn it. We'll never choose it as a verse of the year card because nobody will put it on their mantel shelf probably. But it's just as important that you understand this as well. And all the Christians will know it when I give you the reference. Jeremiah 17, 9. It's a warning. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. The old version said desperately wicked. Who can understand it? What is it saying? It's saying your heart is deceitful. You cannot trust yourself. You are liable to the sin of self-delusion or deception. That is, I am capable, you are capable of being deceived by sin so that you don't recognize what's happened to yourself. How many times does a pastor or an elder or your friend, you sit with them and they're doing the most incredibly stupid thing for a Christian, sinful thing for a Christian, and you talk to them and they can't see it. They can't understand it. And you say to yourself, let me, go, let me run it by you again. You know, friends, the more I mean passport, the more I understand the heart is deceitful above all things. And that's what happened to the people of Israel. You see, if you read between the lines in this chapter 2, you'll see that 
running in. Jeremiah is responding to the responses of the people to what he's been saying about God. The same kind of responses we make. The first response that people make when you address their sin that we make is to minimize guilt. Although you wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Sovereign Lord. How can you say I'm not defiled? I've not run after the balls. You see, there is a true guilt which we experience and feel when we sin, when we forsake the Lord and run after other things. But what always happens with it is we minimize it and its effects. We think we can deal with them easily. We can just get a bit of soap and water and wash them away. But a stain of sin, the stain of sin, permeates deeper. As the old song we used to sing, which you don't sing these days, it said, What can wash away my stain? Only the older folk know the next bit. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus, God's Son, purifies for all from all sin. If we minimize our sin and our guilt and see it is nothing that a good dose of soap and water won't resolve, then we'll never apply the remedy of the blood of Christ because we'll not see the need for it. That's what the people of Israel did. Judah did. Not only that, they were guilty. Secondly, the second delusion was abusing grace. Although they turned to idols of wood and stone and to Baals, the word probably actually interestingly means husband. Although they turned to wood and stone and were worshipping other gods, when they were in trouble, what did they do? They cried out to God. Verse 27, they say to wood, you're my father, it's a stone, you gave me birth. They've turned their backs on me and not their faces, yet when they're in trouble, they say, come and save us. Yes, don't misunderstand. God's grace is such. If you're in a hole this morning, if you're far from God and God is speaking to you, there is a way back. We'll see it next week in chapter 3. Keep coming to the series. It's so important. But, if you keep doing it with impunity, just assuming that you can just, you know, every time you want, you just pick up the phone and dial 999 for God to get you out of a hole. You will sin with impunity and eventually... God forbid, but it will happen. God leaves you to your own devices and you suffer the consequences of your sin. Now, what happens when that happens to us? What do we do? Well, amazingly, we do what the people of Israel did. We turn around and blame God. Incredibly, the roles are reversed in court as the defendant brings charges against God. Why do you bring charge against me, he says. You've rebelled against me, declares the Lord. How often people I find who have lived their lives rebelling against God, totally ignoring God, turn and blame God when things go wrong in their lives. I heard a woman on the radio saying, she said, I don't know if I believe in God, but if there is a God, when I meet him, I'll have something to say to him. Goodness me. I think God will have something to say to each one of us. But he says it first of all in this life, as he did through the prophet like Jeremiah to the people of Israel. So, as the arguments draw to a close, as I draw to a close, what is the final response of God's people in the dock? You know, all this evidence has been laid before them. Do they plead mea culpa and throw themselves on the, on the mercy of the court? I'm guilty. Not at all. Notice how it finishes. They plead innocence. Even when faced with the crime of murdering innocent people, in the Bible speaks commentary on 
Jeremiah Kidness comments, when God is removed, anything becomes possible. See it today in our society. They continue pleading innocent. On your clothes, men, find the lifeblood of innocent poor, though you did not catch them breaking in, yet in spite of all this you say, I'm innocent. He's not angry with me. But I will pass judgment on you, because you say, I have not sinned. Now, how do you get to that point where with all that evidence you can still say, I'm not guilty? Quite simple. It's a heart problem. The heart is deceitful. They're suffering from spiritual amnesia. Now, notice the word forget. Does a maiden forget her jewellery? A bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Now, the Hebrew verbs forget and remember are very important verbs in Scripture. Forget doesn't mean that it's wiped out of your memory. Forget means... You've not brought it to your memory so that it engages with what you do, with your will. Think of an... Oh, let's start with our original illustration. It may be painful for some people. Think of a man who is committing adultery with someone. When he does it, is it that he's got real amnesia and he just can't remember? Gosh, I, I'm sorry I did that. I didn't know I was married. No, he's forgotten his wife in the sense of remembering her so that it affects the way he lives. So that when he's enticed by someone or something, he says, no way, because I remember that I'm married. You see, the people of Israel hadn't forgotten the Lord. In fact, they were still going to the temple and worshipping. It was the time of revival under Josiah. They were all turning up in crowds. More full than Charlotte Chaplin Sunday morning. But they'd forgotten the Lord. Knowing the Lord had nothing to do with the way that they lived. To forget means to put out of your mind so that it doesn't affect your will. And how easy it is for us to drift into the same position. We are prone to forget the purchase price that was paid to make the church the bride of Christ. And that is why, under both Old and New Covenants, it is stressed for Christians that we should remember. The importance of remembering. So the Lord Jesus Christ gave us a visual way, because we tend to forget. Thirty years after he gave it to his first followers in the upper room, at that last supper, as we call it, the Apostle Paul says to the Christians in Corinth, listen, this is something important. I received from the Lord what also I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he betrayed, he took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. No, he didn't mean you've forgotten who Jesus is. He's saying, bring to mind what this means so it will affect the way that you live. In the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's why we meet regularly around the Lord's table. Why? Because we forget. We have spiritual amnesia. And it is the only antidote to the deceitfulness and damage of sin. The only way to avert the judgment that the people of Israel faced and met. 
because they forgot the Lord. It is the only way to maintain a living relationship with the Lord is to bring to mind what Christ did and apply it in your heart and life. Now I've finished almost just two small things to say at the end as we apply this. Uh, to, first of all, a question from Philip Ryken's book. And I was challenged by it myself, and I leave it with you to reflect on. This is what he says. Do you love God like a newlywed, or have you been looking for love in all the wrong places? Do you love God like a newlywed, or have you been looking for love in all the wrong places? Then he goes on to say this, and this is the final bit. Jesus died on the cross to remove the promiscuity and restore the virginity of his spiritual bride. Jesus died on the cross to remove the promiscuity and restore the virginity of his spiritual bride. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's come to God in prayer.